thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. And welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Ginny Smith, and with Hannah Critchlow. This week, the science behind how you get your feet to dance to the beat. How DJs get us all in the groove. The new £10 million science prize, which the government is hoping you could win. And will spectators at the World Cup be at risk of dengue fever? Plus, we'll be discussing some ethical questions about medicine. How do we decide which drugs should be available on the NHS? And will designer babies become more commonplace in the future? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up, have you ever been on the dance floor getting your groove on, enjoying a particular tune, and then the DJ flips the song over and it completely messes up your dancing moves? I have, and in fact, that definitely affected me last night at a party. Well, what's the science behind this DJ skill? Mark Elliott is a research fellow at Birmingham University, and he thinks he's found the answer. Hello, Mark. Hi there. So what makes a good DJ? So a good DJ basically needs to mix two songs together seamlessly. Um, So basically it would sound like this. So they've basically taken, they've got to take two beat lines from two separate songs and then closely match them up together so they sound like a common beat. And if they get it wrong, it can sound pretty horrible and sound like this. enough to put you off your dancing and is literally only like a few tens of milliseconds out so what we wanted to find out is how accurately those beat lines need to be matched for people to start moving in time to them as if they were a single common beat and how did you study that then did you go out to uh, lots of clubs and uh, start measuring people's dance moves <laughs> uh, it wasn't quite that exciting so we did a lab-based experiment where people basically had to just tap along to two metronomes played at the same time so what we did with those metronomes is vary the separation between them and also the consistency and the predictability of the beats of the separate metronomes so we've probably got some examples i think Uh, so this is a consistent metronome where we just separate the two beats apart and then this is an inconsistent metronome where the beats are no longer predictable so what we found was that If the individual metronomes are very consistent, then they had to be very closely matched in time, so there's not much separation between them for them to be considered as a common beat. Whereas on the other hand, if they're inconsistent and less predictable, then the separation could actually be larger and we still would consider them a common beat. 
Does this mean that um, good DJs can mix common beats together in a seamless way? But if you're not quite so talented, then you should either possibly use the fade <laughs> button or try and use more irregular beats so that maybe our brains won't notice or perceive the yeah, difference. So, <laughs> possibly. I mean, what we're showing is that because DJs would tend to play a very regular, strong beat that's very predictable, then they've got to get it very accurately aligned to convince the audience that they're dancing to a single common beat when they mix it. So they've actually got quite a hard task. So there's obviously some very important applications of your research on the dance floor, but what about elsewhere in the world? Yeah, so we're, um, we're now applying our model to quite a different situation where we're looking at synchrony within crowd movements. So, for example, if you think of a football crowd in a stadium, if they get excited, they tend to all jump up and down together. And this can actually be quite a problem for structural vibration in the stadiums. So what we're looking at now is how and when people start moving together. And it's kind of a similar situation because these people moving together, they're effectively defining a common beat between them. But rather than just combining sounds here, they've got a vision and maybe touch from looking at the other people around them. And what we're looking at is how do they use all this conflicting information from across all different senses to actually quite simply make a common beat between them and just spontaneously start jumping up and down together. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Mark Elliott from Birmingham University. And that study was published this week in Proceedings B of Royal Society. Now, this week also saw the relaunch of the Longitude Prize, which was originally set up by the British government 300 years ago to encourage inventors to find a way for ships to pinpoint their positions on long ocean voyages. It was relatively simple to work out a ship's latitude by looking at the position of the sun in the sky. But longitude, which is how far around the Earth's surface the ship was, was much harder to figure out. This prize actually led to a new method being developed, which made determining longitude much more accurate. Now, the new prize offers £10 million to individuals who can solve one of six pressing modern-day problems. Kate Lamble went to see the chair of the committee, Astronomer Royal Professor Martin Rees, who started by explaining the original Longitude Prize. Well, in 1714, the government passed the Longitude Act, and this allowed them to offer a reward of up to £20,000, which is like several million in today's money, for someone who found a way to determine longitude accurately. And specifically, this had to be within 30 miles accuracy after a transatlantic voyage. And who (laughs) solved the problem in the end? Well, the interesting thing was that the solution came from John Harrison, who was a real outsider. He was a Yorkshireman, started as a carpenter and joiner, And he, over 40 years, developed more and more precise chronometers. And he won with an amazingly precise instrument, pocket-size clock, which was robust enough to survive transatlantic voyages. And at the time the prize was set up, it wasn't clear that clocks were the route at all. The establishment of many astronomers thought that it would be solved by uh, precise measurements of the moon and stars. So he was an outsider, and it was a good example of how By having a challenge prize, you draw in outsiders and allow a variety of approaches to play against each other. I love the fact that the first reason for him being an outsider that you mentioned was being a Yorkshireman. Never mind the joiner and carpenter, Yorkshireman comes first. So if it's a good way of bringing in outsiders, why do we want to renew the Longitude Prize today? Well, of course, the scene is very different today. There's not just one big challenge, but many. And of course, there's a huge amount of... uh, incentives being offered by commercial bodies and other government bodies. So 
In fact, the £10 million may seem a lot, but it's a thousandth of what the UK spends annually on R&D. So it's not going to change the world, but it is going to make a distinctive contribution because a well-configured prize has a number of benefits. First, it would allow lots of people to participate, including some outsiders. Secondly, it can attract public interest in the progress towards the goal. And one has to configure the prize so that it's challenging but not impossible. And also, so to judging is objective, so it's important that the judging should be objective, like in athletics, unlike the Oscars or the Turner Prize, for instance. So if longitude was the big problem back in the day, what are the problems that we need to tackle with prizes today? There are very many of them, and I've been chairing a committee which has been picking out six areas which we think are socially important and where we think a prize with an incentive of £10 million could make a difference. And these areas are, first, antibiotic resistance, uh, ways in which, for instance, someone in Africa can decide cheaply and accurately whether they've got a viral disease or a bacterial disease, looking after patients with dementia, uh, looking after uh, people who have handicaps in mobility, using advanced robotics and uh, other techniques, food for the world, new techniques to enable us more readily to feed 9 billion people, clean water for the world. Many people are in places where they need to purify water or desalinize water. And in the transport area, perhaps uh, a way of moving towards zero carbon flight. So those are the six areas. And what's going to happen is they've been announced in a TV program last Thursday, a Horizon program, and that opened the voting. Anyone can vote. And the result of the vote will be announced on the one show on the 25th of June. And then what will happen is that our group will focus on the favoured challenge by the public and try and configure a prize. And it's got to be a prize which uh, is of the right level of difficulty, etc. So that'll be a job for us over the summer. And then the timescale for the prize would be not the 50 years which it took to solve the long-term prize, but something like five years, and we would hope there'd be intermediate steps along the way so that the public can follow progress. The original prize was sold by an outsider. Are outsiders really going to be able to help with antibiotic resistance and robotics and more complex things that we're dealing with nowadays? Well, when I mention antibiotic resistance, clearly drug development is not the kind of thing that one's going to incentivise by this prize, but uh, clever, simple bits of equipment, which maybe in conjunction with a mobile phone allow people to diagnose what sort of disease they've got. And as regards outsiders, then anything involving software, for instance, can be done by very many people. It doesn't involve big bits of equipment. So it's very important that the challenge should be something that... Uh, isn't going to be limited to the big battalions. I better start thinking about my £10 million idea then. That was the Astronomer Royal Mountain Rees, and you can help decide which of the six topics gets chosen by visiting www.longitudeprize.org slash your dash vote. Hannah, what do you think you'd vote for out of those? I probably should vote for either the paralysis or the dementia because my background's in neuroscience. However... Controversially, I think my vote would be cast in um, sustainable food for the world and also clean water supplies. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Ginny Smith and with me, Hannah Critchlow. And this week, a farm worker in Argentina stumbled upon what has turned out to be a bone belonging to the largest known animal to have ever walked the planet. Here's your quickfire science on the find with Kate Lamble and Dave Ansell. 
The creature is a type of dinosaur known as a sauropod and related to the previous contender for the biggest dinosaur title, the Argentinosaurus. Sauropods, like this new dinosaur and its famous relative, the Diplodocus, had large bodies, long necks and tails, and very small heads. The newly discovered sauropod is thought to be 40 metres long and 20 metres tall. That's the height of a seven-storey building. It weighed 77 tonnes, which makes it as heavy as 14 African elephants. The animal was a herbivore and lived during the late Cretaceous period, about 100 million years ago. Scientists think that sauropods grew so big because being bigger may have helped them fend or scare off predatory dinosaurs. They had long necks which allowed them to reach many different food sources to fuel their huge bodies and light bones which helped them overcome structural constraints. This discovery is particularly important as they found 150 bones from seven individuals which are said to be in remarkable condition. Previously, the researchers have only had a few bones to go on, making it very difficult to estimate the size and weight of the creature. The weight of the previous contender, the Argentinosaurus, was revised down from the initial estimate of 100 tonnes to 70 because estimating weight from so few bones is unreliable. It can also be difficult to work out the dinosaur's proportions and overall shape when not all the bones are present. This dinosaur hasn't yet been named, but researchers have said the name will honour the region it was found in and the farm workers who made the discovery. Dave Ansell and Kate Lamble. And you can get hold of all of our Quickfire Science episodes as their own podcasts from our website. That's thenakedscientists.com forward slash quickfire science. Now, I don't know if you're a football fan. I must admit I'm not. But even I can't escape talk of the upcoming World Cup in Brazil. Conditions there are predicted to reach fever pitch for more than just the matches, though because a new disease forecasting system is predicting epidemics of dengue fever. Dengue is a mosquito-borne viral illness that causes high fevers and severe bone and joint pains. In some cases, it can even be life-threatening. Dengue is endemic in Brazil, and it follows a seasonal pattern linked to the weather, with conditions that favour mosquito breeding making an epidemic more likely. Now, Rachel Rowe and her colleagues at the Catalan Institute of Climate Sciences in Barcelona have designed a computer model that can forecast, three months ahead, the likelihood of dengue epidemics in a given geography. Rachel gave Chris Smith the details. We've put together an early warning system for dengue fever in Brazil, which brings together many different risk factors for dengue and climate information. And what we then do is use forecasts of the climate information to try and predict where it may be more likely to have dengue epidemics. This is, of course, relevant because pretty soon FIFA estimate that more than a million people are expected to descend on Brazil for, of course, the World Cup. So in this case, we got together with the climate services in Brazil and the Ministry of Health, putting together the latest data on the dengue cases and the temperature and precipitation for the month preceding the Games to try and say when and where there might be more likely to be in dengue outbreaks or not. So how have you used the information we have on what's happened in the past in Brazil to try to make these predictions about where there'll be activity around the country? We took the dengue cases over the last 14 years, combined this uh, with information on climate and also non-climatic factors. We combined this into a model and then we used severity thresholds that are used by the Ministry of Health to work out the chance of dengue cases exceeding medium and high levels. 
we looked at the performance of the early warning system on past data, and using this, we devised optimum trigger thresholds to indicate whether low, medium or high warning should be issued for the 12 host venues. Oh, I see. So by using data of what has happened in the past and how those weather patterns and so on coincide with the sorts of numbers you get for dengue, you can then have a sort of system that will enable you to predict this is where we would expect to have activity of the following amounts. Exactly. That The model takes into account differences in dengue throughout the year and also in different ecological zones. And when would the dengue season normally be in Brazil? Mainly between January and May. So by the time most of the people would be visiting, we would expect the disease activity to be waning? Yeah, we'd expect it to be on the decrease. But what does your model say about the different areas where parts of the World Cup are going to be played? In the three northeastern cities of Natal, Fortaleza and Recife, there is an increased chance of a dengue outbreak. There are medium levels in some of the other stadiums, such as Rio de Janeiro, Salvador and Manaus, and in the southern cities, the risk is most likely to be low. Can you just tell us what does a high risk mean? The way we defined it was a probability of dengue cases within the microregion exceeding 300 cases per 100,000 inhabitants. And what's the likelihood that those three areas, Natal, Fortaleza and Recife, are going to have those sorts of numbers? The probability of exceeding that threshold in Natal is 48%, in Fortaleza, 46%, and in Recife, 19%. So that's really a reasonable chance of high dengue activity in three areas which do overlap with where games are scheduled to be played. Yeah, so the idea of this model is it's capable of issuing warnings three months in advance that can be incorporated into the decision-making of the local authorities and the dengue control people to help concentrate intervention activities in those areas. Would that mean, for instance, spraying for mosquitoes, giving people advice, telling people to wear mosquito repellents, for example? Yes, and the dengue control teams have been going house-to-house checking for potential mosquito breeding sites, destroying them. And what do the Brazilian authorities say about this? I presume you've shared your findings with them. Yes, we actually our co-authors included scientists from the Ministry of Health. They provided input about how to use these results in a health policy way and they provided us with the latest data in order to produce the forecast. Have they also now formulated a strategy for the World Cup based upon your predictions, which suggest that there are three hotspots? The National Dengue Control Programme are working very hard in all the cities ahead of the World Cup to make sure the dengue risk will be at a minimum. Dr Rachel Lowe from the Catalan Institute of Climate Sciences in Barcelona. Now, sticking with this subject of bugs, we don't want to put you off your football or your tea, but our bodies are teeming with trillions of bacteria any time. In fact, 9 out of 10 cells in your body are bugs. Our so-called microbiome is usually made up of friendly bacteria that live in the gut, on the skin, in the mouth and elsewhere, helping to keep us healthy. Billions of bugs are already on and inside a baby within the first few days of life. But where do they come from? Chirsty Agard from Baylor College of Medicine in Texas thinks... She's found the answer, and it's really not where you might expect. Kat Arney spoke to her to find out more. The question we are trying to answer is, does it start 
at the time of birth? Does it start depending upon how that baby is born, whether it's, you know, through the vaginal canal or via cesarean? And we had a couple of clues early on that it may actually precede the immediate time around birth. So other investigators, if they looked at the phyla, the different bacteria in an infant's gut in the first week of life at a very high level view, they found that about half of the bacteria that are present were what we call actinobacteria, which includes bifidobacterium and propionobacterium. And then there were a smaller minority that were bacteroidetes and firmicutes. And included in this firmicutes is lactobacillus. What we were intrigued by is that very small 10 to 20% of so that are present in that infant in that first week of life of lactobacillus were really the only ones that are dominant in the vaginal flora. In other words, some 80% or more of the different types of bacteria that populate that infant at the time of birth or within that first week of life weren't coming from the vagina. Now, that's very controversial because we sort of have this idea that as baby comes out of mum, it gets covered with all these bacteria, and that's what colonizes it. Where have these bugs come from? We said there were kind of two things that weren't making a lot of sense to us. So one was what I'd call the science map, which was what was present in that infant's gut didn't seem to match real well what was present in the vagina. And in addition, as a clinical obstetrician, it's not like babies spend a lot of time hanging out in the vagina on their way out of the uterus and into the world. They're moving through pretty quickly. So how is it exactly that they would acquire all of these microbes simply as the passage through the birth canal? So we were curious whether it was possible that, first of all, the infant wasn't that sterile at birth and whether or not it was actually being exposed even in normal non-infected settings prior to delivery. Where are these mystery microbes coming from? Now, when we were just starting to complete this study, another group here in the U.S. showed using very traditional microscopic techniques that if you looked in the placenta, nearly a half, just over a third or so, had evidence of bacteria in completely normal, uncomplicated, no infected placentas. So we kind of took that up and said, great, we're going to use a metagenomic or DNA-based microscope, and we're going to look as detailed and as robustly as we possibly can within that placenta and see what actually is there and what they're capable of doing. And so what did you find? So what we found was that, first of all, there were bacteria present in the placenta. Now, they're what we call low biomass, which means that, you know, the placenta isn't teeming with that bacteria. And if we had to make a rough calculation, we'd say that for every pound or approximately five to 600 grams of placental tissue, there's about a gram of bacterial DNA. We don't really know what that equates to per number of cells because we haven't figured that out yet, but that works underway and we may get a better appreciation for it. But when we looked at who was there, what we found when we compared it to other microbiome body sites is that placental microbiome started to look the most like the oral microbiome and didn't actually look very much like either the gut or the vagina. It really looked 
like the mouth. Now, this is just getting weirder. So how does the kind of bacteria that are in the mouth get into the placenta? And then how do they get from the placenta into the baby? We don't know exactly how they get there. We can make some educated guesses as to how we think they get there. And we think they're primarily spread through the blood. And what we think is that some of the bacteria that are in the mouth actually do a very good job of making their way through the endothelial linings in blood vessels and potentially then pave the way for other bacteria like E. coli to make their way. That was Kirsty Agard from the Bayer College of Medicine in Texas. And if you'd like to follow up on the stories we've been discussing, there are references and transcripts for those news items on our website at nakedscientists.com forward slash news. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Hannah Critchlow and me, Ginny Smith. Now, moving on to our main topic for this week, and every week here on The Naked Scientists, we seem to hear about amazing medical discoveries that could improve treatments for one disease or another. But what we don't often get to discuss is the ethical considerations involved in how we use these advances. So that's what we're going to have a look at today. First up, in the UK, our National Health Service, as we hear in the newspapers all the time, has limits on its budgets. And that means we have to decide which drugs we can afford to fund and which are just simply out of our price range. So how do we decide which drugs we have access to on the NHS? Well, NICE, or the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, are the body that makes these recommendations after balancing the number of years of life that will be added due to medicine and the quality of that added life with the cost of the medicine to come up with a figure known as quali. So Kate Lemble asked Director of their Centre for Health Technology Evaluation, Carol Longson, how they come up with this very tough decision on a quali. We could talk about this in a very technical way. We use health economics and cost effectiveness analysis, so they're the technical terms. But in essence, at the heart of it is trying to understand the added benefit that a medicine or other technology might bring and compare that to the added cost that we have to incur when we're using that. That's called cost effectiveness analysis. But it's very much like looking at a budget and thinking about the best way to spend the money that they have available to deliver the best effect. So when you have to know how effective a drug is, who gives you that information? Increasingly, we're taking a look at medicines very early. And as a consequence of that, we rely quite heavily on the companies that produce those medicines to provide the evidence to us. And added to that, we ask patient groups, we ask health professionals to give us information and an understanding and experience of what it's like to both live with that condition and also manage that condition in the healthcare service. And it's all that information that comes into our decision maker, which is an independent committee. It's not nice staff that sit on that committee. An independent committee that takes a look at all of that evidence and information in the round when judging whether or not a new medicine is, in fact, good value for money. Some people, like, for example, the science journalist Ben Goldacre, argue that there's a bias in the evidence that some pharmaceutical companies produce towards positive results and negative results that show it's not that effective, aren't necessarily brought up. Do you think that that can in any way influence NICE's decision? 
So what Ben Goldacre's talking about there is what the researchers term publication bias. It's actually a very standard common phenomenon in science overall. So it's not just about companies in that researchers tend to want to tell people about their positive results. And when the results are not so positive, tend not to want to publish. And you do have to be very careful that you're looking at all of the data. We would use both published and unpublished data. But you're right, it is a very, very important aspect of all science, to be honest, that you are careful about the data that you're looking at and you make inferences about what data may or may not be available at the time that you're looking and making the decision. So you take into account evidence published and unpublished, but also these personal accounts of what it's like living with a disease, for example. How do you make that idea of this cost-benefit analysis? Is any amount too much? This gets into the area of, again, an economic term called opportunity cost. You've got a pot of money, and if you use it to buy something, you can't use it to buy something else. You, you can only spend the money once. And through some analysis, we can understand what it is the health service in particular is using their budget for and also how much health they're generating for that spend. And we use that as the basis of estimating value for money. And that opportunity cost translates into something called a cost per quality adjusted life year so another technical term and at a particular level of a quality adjusted life year which is £20,000 per quality adjusted life year we know that the NHS gets good value for money at that level. And so this £20,000 figure, when we're talking about a quality-adjusted life year, are we saying that if I was sick that would be a good year of my life? What we're saying is that a new technology can bring improved quality of life, so how well you're able to undertake activities of daily living, for example, or extend your life, or hopefully both of those things. So again, it's not about the cost to gain that particular increment. It's about how that increment stacks up against how much you have to pay to gain it. That's really at the heart of what we do. It's not the whole thing that we take into account because all of those patient accounts and thinking about the efficiency of the healthcare system also feeds into the judgment, which in the end the committee has to make. It's, it's not an algorithm. It's not a, a flowchart for how to do this. It's a judgment so NICE sort of acts as the gateway to the NHS, which is quite a big market for drugs, I suppose. How much is there, you're the doorman sort of guarding the way and they have to be effective, and how much is there some kind of negotiation about the price or can they come back to you if something's rejected? Now, that's a really interesting question. Yes, we probably do see our role both as... I suppose, as gatekeepers and enablers. So we do have to be very careful that the NHS, in using new medicines, is spending that money as wisely as they can. But we have to do that in a way that enables these promising new innovations to be used in our healthcare system. Recently, it's been introduced a concept of patient access schemes. And these provide a mechanism for companies to reflect and come back to us with a new proposal. And they have provided an extremely useful mechanism for us to act in that enabling role with companies. 
When you reject a drug, there was a recent £90,000 breast cancer drug that was rejected and it sort of hit the headlines because there are a lot of patient groups who obviously feel like they need the drug and they get upset that it wouldn't be made available to them. Do you at NICE understand their position and why they're so desperate? Does it become very difficult for the people on the panels to make those decisions? The people on those panels really do have probably one of the hardest jobs in public life. But what they really do have to do is to try to balance those needs at the individual with the needs of everybody who uses the NHS and to make sure that their judgments reflect that balance as best they can. That was Carol Longson from the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. So we use NICE to help us decide which drugs we should have access to. But what do other countries do? And how do we make sure that low- and middle-income countries still have access to life-saving medicines? Jennifer Cohn is from Médecins Sans Frontières and Joshua Cohen is from Tufts University in the US. Now, Joshua, I know the US have recently been discussing introducing nice-like panels, but conservative media in the country have been calling them death panels. Is that really how our system is seen in other countries around the world? I think it depends very much on the political lens through which Americans may look at something like the National Institute for Clinical Excellence. Those in the U.S. opposed to government regulations and rationing would think of NICE as a death panel of sorts. And those who are in favor of some degree of regulations by government would view NICE as a useful framework. However, it's not directly translatable uh, to the U.S. healthcare system. The system we have in the United States is decentralized to a degree that certainly the U.K. is not. And with literally hundreds of payers and 50 states and a federal state division of labor with respect to uh, government, you're not going to see a nice-like body being instituted. That being said, Obamacare in some ways does use nice-like mechanisms, such as spending lots of money on comparative effectiveness research. So that's a good point. In America and in the UK, we do actually have a reasonable amount of money to spend. So when we're looking at how expensive drugs are, we have a very different framework from, say, low and middle income countries. Jennifer, I know you work with those sort of countries. Do they pay the same sort of amounts as us for drugs? It really depends. So many low income countries can have access to generic medicines. In some cases, before countries like the U.S. or U.K. can. And that's because of laws that recognize that public health needs may come before patent and profits. Now, that's not to say necessarily that these drugs are always affordable. However, let's take the example of HIV. In 1999, the cost of a brand name first line antiretroviral regimen to treat HIV in low and middle income countries was about $10,000 per patient per year. Now, that's far, far above what most countries could afford. And this, again, is at a time when countries in southern Africa, such as Swaziland and even Botswana, were looking at HIV infection rates of about 40 percent or nearly one in two people. Now, within about a year, prices came down dramatically from $10,000 per patient per year to about $350 U.S. dollars per patient per year. And why was that? That was almost exclusively because of the entry of generic manufacturers that produced quality versions of these exact same medicines 
for patients. And the effects of competition can rapidly bring down prices and thus increase access to patients who desperately need these drugs. Jennifer, when we're talking about lower middle income countries, is it just places like Africa? Are there other places in the EU that are paying less than us for drugs? Absolutely. So in many cases, the drugs that are available generically may not just be available in Africa. So again, for instance, countries like Thailand may have access to generics as well. Countries in the EU generally follow the same patent laws. And in fact, the EU does have an agreement that a lowest cost medicine in one country in the EU can actually be imported to other countries in the European Union. But that's just an agreement within the European Union. Now, I've had a question in from Facebook. Richard Lyle says, what can be done to reduce the cost of bringing a new drug to market without putting patient safety at risk? So drug companies tell us that they have to charge these high prices because of all the development cost. And we actually asked several drug companies to come along and talk to us tonight. Unfortunately, none of them were available. But Joshua, what do you think? Could we bring the prices down? Yes, but let me first start out by saying uh, the high cost of drug development is not and should not be a justification per se of high prices. Uh, Markets may justify high prices if a drug is highly valued by patients and doctors, especially if we're talking about brand name drugs, drugs for which there are limited or no treatment alternatives. In a competitive market, price should be a reflection of supply and demand and in particular an informed consumer's willingness to pay for a drug. But the problem is healthcare markets are notoriously characterized by some degree of market failure. And the most distinctive feature of this market failure is the fact that consumers are generally not well-informed about a drug's value or its cost. And this is really where NICE and other health technology assessment organizations, also in the U.S., would come in and make some kind of value assessment of the drugs that are in the market. Now, we should distinguish between the brand name drugs, new drugs, and particular drugs that create a unique therapeutic class from generic drugs. And in the United States, about 85% of prescriptions are now generic. The pricing debate certainly does not affect generics. It's about those brand name drugs targeting populations, often orphan populations. The drugs are quite expensive. And that's really what the pricing debate is looking at. We'll have to leave it there, I'm afraid. But thank you so much to Jennifer Cohn and Joshua Cohen for joining me. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Ginny Smith and with me, Hannah Critchlow. This week, we've been talking about tough ethical issues in medicine and so far we've been discussing the price of drugs. But in recent years, medicine is becoming more and more personalised with drugs being adapted to our specific DNA codes. With all this sensitive data needing to be stored, some people, including Yaniv Ehrlich from MIT, has concerns about the safety and privacy of our genetic information, as he explained earlier this week to Kate Lamble. The genome is basically three billion letters that consist our DNA. This is the material that is inherited from our parents and basically represents our heritage. Now, for most of the traits and the diseases that we know, there is a strong genetic component. But it's important to emphasize that for most of the diseases, the genome doesn't determine the trait, but just 
increases the predisposition. And by analyzing genomes, we can understand these tendencies and the hope that in the future we can suggest treatments based on the genetic makeup of the person, what is called personalized medicine. So you're concerned about the security of this genetic data. If I gave my genetic data to somebody, what would be the problem if someone identified me? I mean, I put lots of information on Facebook and Twitter in the public domain about myself all the time. How would someone having my genetic information be different? What could they do with it? The thing is that it's a question of personal taste. Some people are really open about sharing data about themselves. Other people have some concerns about the privacy. Some people are concerned that they might be discriminated based on their genetic makeup. So our project was mainly to show that this can happen and to tell people that they should be aware of that. Are there laws against it, as well as just protecting ourselves sort of by not sharing our data? Are there laws being enacted to prevent this from happening in the future? So here in the US, we have GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And according to GINA, you cannot be discriminated in your workplace or by health insurance based on your genetic material. But GINA, as of today, doesn't protect you from discrimination by your life insurance company or long-term care. So it, it gives you some cover, but the blanket is not full. There are still services that you will be denied based on your genetic makeup. If I donated my genetic data or gave my genetic data to either a research institute or to my doctor for some personalised medicine, they were going to anonymise that data, take my name off it. How could somebody then know that that data was mine? Your genome is a strong identifier of yourself. And I will tell you a little bit about our study. We focus on males. Now, males get the Y chromosome from their father, and their father got his Y chromosome from his father. Now, in most Western societies, males get their surname from their fathers as well. So this creates a correlation between the Y chromosome and the surname. What we showed that you can take whole genome sequencing data that is apparently de-identified or anonymized, and then by inspecting the Y chromosome and searching it online genetic genealogy databases, you can find the surname of the individual. And then we considered if you know the age of the person and the geographical location. In most cases, you have this information as part of the metadata. So we said, okay, if you have the, the surname, you have the age, and you have the geographical region, you can really identify the person and get to this individual. And we showed that in several examples that we can get to people that posted their genome anonymously on the web that we can identify them. It amazes me that these genetic databases that you can use to identify somebody's surname are just lying around on the web. How did we get ourselves into a situation where that information is just out there? Many people are interested about their heritage and about their ancestry. And these databases created by the really vibrant community of genetic genealogists and by the way, I'm part of this community as well. I also put my Y chromosome and my surname in these databases because I, I wanted to know more about my heritage. Now, the thing is that if you contribute, it enables people to identify all your patrilineal relatives. So if we want to protect this data and do more than just anonymize it, I mean, I share my banking details online to buy things on the internet through PayPal and things all the time. Can we just use the same practices that they do to protect our genetic information? It's a bit different because when you share your bank information, what you're trying to protect is from a third party 
that will tap into the conversation or the online transaction, but the bank that you are communicating with sees all the information. So we cannot use just these simple encryption methods, but there are new methods that are currently developed, but it's, I have to say that they are still in their infancy. And in these methods, you could share genetic information, let's say with some companies that try to interpret the information for you. And under this encryption methods called homophic encryption, the interpretation company, the company that tries to say what are the predispositions that you have, they don't really see the actual data. So think about that, you have a brick of gold and you want to go to a jewelry maker, but you don't really trust a jewelry maker. He might just take the brick of gold and run away. So what you could do, you could take this brick of gold place it in a glove box and put inside the glove box all the equipment that it needs to make the necklace. You lock the glove box with the best lock in the world, and now you give it to the, to the jewelry maker. Now, the person has no interest of running away because he will never be able to, to break into the glove box and steal the gold brick, but he can still make the necklace for you. The same way, this encryption method, you put your genetic information inside this mathematical glove box, now you give this glove box to the company, they know how to process this encrypted data and to derive the predispositions, but they don't see the actual results. They cannot just take them and run away. You get back this glove box, you open with your key, and now you get this processed genetic information that you can do something with it. You can go to your physician or use it for other purposes. Yanni Verlick from MIT. I mean, I was worried about my Facebook privacy settings, but I'm actually quite astounded that if um, I anonymously handed in my DNA sample, then someone would be able to analyse it and from that information then pinpoint who I was, or probably, most probably, be able to pinpoint my name, my age, uh, my gender, where I live, and um, any diseases that I might be predisposed to. It's quite a worrying thought, and I'm pleased that they're now working on encrypting that information. So even if genetic information is going to be carefully stored in the future, many people still have concerns about its use. Julian Svavalesco is the director of the Oxford Practical Centre for Ethics, and Amy Taylor is the genetic counsellor at Edinburgh's Hospital. Julian, we've heard the terms um, designer babies banded around in the press with some concerns about the fact that we might be shaping society in the future. And you actually specifically look at the ethics around how we can look at genetics of embryos and then select which embryo we then want to implant into a mother's uterus and basically genetically select which baby will be born. I mean, is this possible and is it even legal? Yes, using IVF and genetic diagnosis, you can test embryos at the moment legally for dispositions to major diseases. So chromosomal diseases like Down syndrome or single gene disorders like cystic fibrosis, thalassemia, Huntington's disease and some early onset forms of Alzheimer's disease. But you can only test for the genes which are associated with uh, what the Human Fertilisation Embryology Authority judges to be serious disease. You can't, for example, test for the sex of the baby and choose to have a male or female embryo. And nor can you test for genes that are associated with various abilities or personality traits. 
Thank you, Julian. And I suppose um, previously the situation was that if a mother was at risk of having a child with Down syndrome, for example, she might have an amniotic fluid sample and cells taken, then have to face a very difficult decision as to whether to continue with that pregnancy or whether to abort, which is obviously you know, a very tricky issue to face. Amy, I believe that you actually work with some of the parents who are facing these types of decisions. How do you talk about these issues with them? Well, we see families who have um, a known genetic condition that's been inherited through their family and we start by exploring with them how they feel about the possibility of having a child affected by that condition. Some couples will be accepting of that. Um, That depends on the severity of the condition, their own experience of it in the family. Some will feel very strongly that they don't wish that condition to be passed on to the next generation. So if they take that position, then pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or PGD is an option for them. It's a simpler option or it's an ethically more comfortable option for them than to go through pregnancy and have diagnosis and then have termination. But that's not to say that it's easy at all. Like all IVF, it's a lengthy process. A woman has to have her ovary stimulated to produce several eggs. It takes probably about a year from when we refer a couple to the PGD centre, which is in London, to when they might have actually an embryo implanted. So it's not something that couples undertake lightly. They do it if they feel strongly that... Usually their reasoning is that it would be unfair on a child to have that condition. And I believe that there's a a big community of people that are affected by deafness. Um, And this is another condition which is listed within the guidelines of something that we can legally, within the UK, use this pre-implantation diagnosis, genetic screening treatment for. And there's lots of people that say that actually deafness isn't a disability. It provides another form of language for people and we shouldn't be able to select those genes out of the gene pool. That's true. So as Julian mentioned, the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority, the HFEA, decide what conditions can be selected for using PGD. And one gene that causes deafness, Connexin 26, is on that list. The way that they make those decisions about what conditions are added to the list is dependent on how severe a condition is. They do use public consultation. So deafness is probably at the milder end of the conditions where PGD is allowable. And you're absolutely right, the deaf community feel very strongly that deafness is just a normal variation and that um, it shouldn't be something that you should select out of the population. Julian, I believe that also as we're getting more information on the genetic basis of disorders like schizophrenia, for example, or autism or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, there's you know a possibility that people may want to select embryos out that have a predisposition, a genetic predisposition to disorders like that. Is there a worry that that might happen in the future? Are we playing God a little bit too much? Are we trying too much to shape society? Well, you can sequence the whole genome of of an embryo at the moment, but it's very expensive. Well, it's come down to about $1,000. So eventually you'll be able to look at all the genes that are associated with, say, psychiatric diseases such as schizophrenia or depression. And when you have 10 or 20 embryos and you've found the ones which don't have major genetic diseases, you'll then have a risk profile. So embryo 1 will have a higher chance of developing schizophrenia and embryo 2 will maybe have a higher chance of depression. And it's my view that people should be free to make those decisions. The state doesn't have a a role in constraining their liberty. They should have access to that information when it's available and they should make decisions about what kind of child they think will will have the best chance of the best life. 
Um, I think the worry is that at the moment, you wouldn't be allowed to test for those risk factors, even though the information is available. Um, what about the fact that some of these genes might actually confer an evolutionary advantage? You've got 10 seconds to try and answer that. <laughs> well, then, you know, you have to, to factor that into the decision. And I think if you give f- people freedom, some people will choose to select against that, some people won't. You're only talking about selecting from embryos that nature might have picked out. You're not talking about genetically engineering people. Thank you, and I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Thanks to Julian Swaveleski and Amy Taylor. And finally... Here's Hannah with your question of the week. This week, we get our heads in a spin, attempting to address antimatter. Kevin got in touch, asking this. Hi, this is Kevin Fitch from Glenwood, Maryland. As I understand it, physicists have been trying to figure out why the universe is made primarily of matter as opposed to antimatter. What evidence is there that the universe is made primarily of matter? How would we be able to tell if roughly half the galaxies out there were primarily antimatter? Thanks. So, is there an antimatter planet out there? Could we see one, even if there was? And does it even matter? We take these questions to Tamala Maciel, PhD astrophysicist at Cambridge University. First up, what exactly is antimatter? It's very much like normal matter. Same mass, same sort of interaction with gravity. It's just that it's got opposite charges, opposite magnetic spins to normal matters. In which case, would a planet made up of antimatter be stable? So if we had an antimatter planet or an antimatter star or antimatter galaxy, and it was sitting out in a corner of space completely by itself in a vacuum, it would look completely normal to us. We wouldn't see anything exotic about it. It would be radiating the same sort of light that maybe a normal star or normal galaxy does. It would be gravitationally bound, it would be very stable. So actually, something completely isolated, made of antimatter, we wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And this is because antimatter behaves very, very similarly to normal matter. We've actually experimentally tested this as well. I think a few years ago, the Large Hadron Collider made an anti-hydrogen, so an anti-proton plus an anti-electron that was bound together. And they kept it around for 17 minutes. And the only limiting factor of that was simply they needed to keep it away from every bit of normal matter that was around, so the walls of the detector and stuff. Uh, Really, by itself, it's completely stable and acts just like a normal hydrogen atom. So antimatter galaxies, on their own, no problem. They would would look the same to us. How do we know if there are actually antimatter galaxies out there? The problem is if there's any boundary between an antimatter galaxy and a matter galaxy. And And there is stuff. There's gas and dust between galaxies. As soon as antimatter and matter collide, they annihilate. And we would expect to see at that interface a wall of sort of gamma ray emission, from all of this annihilation happening. And we've been looking for this. And actually, we don't see any areas where there's this large, continuous stream of gamma-ray photons that would be indicative of antimatter galaxies or stars out there. Thanks, Tamala. Well, moving to another type of annihilation, from antimatter to ashes. Tracy wrote in with this. Would cremated ashes, human or animal, have any effect on the growth of a plant? We are thinking of starting a business where we put cremated ashes in a pot with a plant and would like to know how this would affect the growth of the plant. So, once dead, and if cremated, could a scattering of your ashes help to grow a tree? If you've got some ideas, you can find us on Facebook or get in touch with us via Twitter, at Naked Scientists. Now that's all we've got time for for this week. My thanks to all of our guests, Jennifer Cohn, Joshua Cohen... Amy Taylor and Julian Swavalesco. Thanks also to Kate Lamble for production.
Now, I know it might be the middle of exam season, but do join us next week when we'll have a special Science Centre show all about learning and memory. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.